Hi, I'm Jeff Watts, and I want to welcome you to the Renaissance Podcast. And I also want to thank you for partnering with us as we strive to reach the heart of our city with the truth and love of Jesus. There's always something new and exciting happening here at Ren, so please follow us on social media. You can find us by searching Renaissance Decatur. And you can also connect with us by visiting our website, rendecatur.org. Enjoy the podcast, and thank you so much for being a part of this community. Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Happy Easter. If we haven't met or if you have really bad short-term memory, my name is Jeff, and I am one of the leaders here at the church. Uh, I shared with all of the four services before this one that one of my favorite things to do every week is to share little pieces of my life, not because I think you need to know about it, it's because I need the therapy. Can I just do that? Can I admit that to you guys right now? So I just want to open with this statement. I grew up in the 70s. Yes, I'm that old, right? And this is before, someone clapping the 70s? Yeah! <laughs> So this is before minivans were like all the rage for families, and it was okay to have a family car like a 1969 Plymouth Roadrunner, like a hot rod for a car. Come on, somebody. Yeah, so that was our family car. My dad loved the hot rod thing. And I remember riding in the back with my younger brother. This is before seatbelts and all that crazy stuff. Um, And we would go on vacations in this car, and it had no air condition. And it had no DVD player. It had none of those things to occupy our time. The only thing we could do is stare out the back window and, and hopefully there would be clouds in the sky to give you something to look at. That's, that's all we had growing up as a kid. And I, I remember one specific instance, I was staring out the window as a young boy and I saw uh, in the, the cloud, I have this vivid imagination, I saw in the clouds uh, an elephant I think it was an elephant. It was some type of animal thing. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. And I looked at my older brother and I said, brother, look, there's an elephant out there. And with as much affection as he could muster for me, he said, you're an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Therapy. I'm just throwing this out there. You know? And I'm like, no, it's an elephant. I can see the thing and roof and a whole, everything. And I'm saying, mom, mom, dad, look out the window. There's an elephant. But too much time had passed. We'd driven too far and the wind had turned the cloud. You know what I mean? And it, it disappeared. And I, in fact, looked like an idiot standing in the car there. So um, I wish I had a phone, not so much to fidget with or to occupy my time. I wish I had a phone so I could have taken a picture of it. Because all I needed was proof that that thing did look like an elephant five minutes ago. I'm just saying. And, And we use pictures and photographs for proof all the time. Every four years, the Summer Olympics will come around. And I love to watch the track and field events. Anyone else? I specifically love the the sprints, the 100 meter, the 200 meters. It's in those races we coin the term for the fastest person alive, male or female. But it seems like every year the Olympics come around, there's some controversy in one of the races where two people sort of cross the finish line at the same time. Like, it's like they're right there, neck and neck, and the broadcasters will play the, the video back and forward, back and forth, and, and we're trying to determine who crossed the finish line. And if you're like me, you get into the Olympics and just screaming at the television. You're like, no, this guy crossed first. Look, you can see his foot and this now. And we're yelling, getting all hyper and everything. But it's not until the judges actually show the photograph that's taken. You know the finish line photograph I'm talking about? And it's in that moment we can see who crossed the line first. We, we know exactly whose foot or whose chest broke the, the finish line first. See, we use pictures for proof of things. Uh, at the end of my mom and dad's hallway, there's a closet, and inside that closet, there's a portal to the past. It's called the family photo album. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? 
And inside that photo album is proof that previous generations had no idea what they were doing when it came to fashion and haircuts. I'm just saying, I'm convinced my mom did not like me much the way she dressed me when I was a kid. But in those faded and crumpled up images in that photo album, we see pictures of people that we love. I mean, remember like birthday parties where all the family was gathered and he would snap a picture to sort of capture the moment? It's a reminder that that thing took place. And in those photos, there's, there's family members and, fam and, and loved ones that are no longer with us now. In fact, I've actually looked at a, a photo album underneath the shade tree of a giant oak tree. And in the photo album is a picture of that tree being planted and it's only five foot tall. See, these pictures, they go out and they reach into time, into history, and they capture a moment. It's a moment that can, can never be recreated. It can never be set just like it was before. It's like a sculptor with a chisel and a hammer, and it sculpts something indelible into that photograph. It cannot be changed. We uh, are reminded when we look at those photos that time continues to move forward, continues to march forward. Every once in a while, my family, when we get together over the holidays, like Easter or Christmas, somebody will be brave enough to break out the photo album. And we laugh and we argue and we like, and we, and we mourn the loss of those people. And we remember our past. Before there were photographs, people still remembered the past. They just did it a different way. Before there was digital cameras, before there was film cameras, before any of that stuff, if they wanted to remember something, they would just tell the story about it. And that's what I want to do today. I want to tell two brief stories for us. And I hope that they'll be um, helpful to us and inspirational to us. And, and most importantly, I, I hope that they really present Jesus, the Son of God, to you in a way that just makes sense. And to do that, I always ask at this moment that we just bow our heads and pray and just ask God to help us. So if you would honor me in that, that'd be great. God, we just thank you for everything that you do. We thank you for our lives. We thank you for your son, Jesus. You loved us so much that Jesus came and he came to save us and, and you raised him from the dead. That's really why we're here celebrating. So God, we just thank you for all of that. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you would be a part of our gathering as well. And, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears so that we can see and we can hear and that our hearts would be a fertile ground for the truth of God to land there and produce something in us that you desire. God, we thank you for everything that you do and it's in Jesus' name, amen, amen. The first story I wanna tell you is about a, a group of people. They're the ancient Israelites. Some of you may have heard of them. The ancient Israelites found themselves in a precarious situation out of nothing that they had done themselves. They were living in a land far away from their own homeland. It was a, a land called Egypt, and they were being oppressed by a wicked king called Pharaoh. Their lives were in turmoil. They were truly being abused. They were abused physically and mentally. At one point, at the apex of Pharaoh's cruelty, he ordered the execution of every baby boy born to a Hebrew woman. As soon as the child was born, he was taken to the river and drowned. Can you imagine this? Pharaoh had this idea that if these baby boys were able to grow, they might become mighty men and band together and form an insurrection against his reign, and he would not have it. So he ordered the execution of their children. 
They were treated, hear this, the Hebrew people were treated worse than animals at that time. But something in them called back to a time long before that reminded them that even though they're in this situation, this is in fact not what God desired for them. In fact, if I could just pause here and look at our own lives, maybe I could say this to you, that sometimes we find ourselves in a situation, in a particular um, predicament, but I, I can say this, that God sometimes doesn't want those things for our lives. He, in fact, has another plan for us altogether. The Hebrew people knew this. The ancient Israelites knew this because their forefathers told of a story when God came to them and says, listen, I'm going to gather you into a place of blessing and prosperity, and there you will be a blessing to all of the nations. That's God's plan for them. I would argue that's God's plan for us. But that was not the reality. And in the middle of all of this oppression and affliction and persecution, they cry out to God, help us, save us. God, would you help me? And God did. He did. He sent a man named Moses. We'll talk about him later. But he goes in before Pharaoh and says, God wants his people back. Let him go. And through a series of miraculous events, God rescues his people. We learn two things in this story. Number one, God hears the cry of the afflicted. Yes? Yes? God hears the, the call of people who are in desperate need of him. He hears us when we cry to him. And secondly, he not only hears, but he is powerful and willing to save us, to rescue us when we need it. This story was a profound moment in their history. And God commanded them to come together every year in the spring, just like this, and retell the story. And so the patriarch of the family, the grandfather, the father would stand with all the kids around the table, usually beginning with something like this, shush. That's what you do when kids are in the room, shush, right? I have to tell you a story. It's a story of one time we were afflicted and oppressed and we cried out to God and he rescued us. And they would tell the story over and over and over for hundreds of years and thousands of years. In fact, there are still Jewish people today who tell that same story every spring. If the ancient Israelites had cars back then, they would have put bumper stickers on the back that said, we will never forget. But time has this incredible ability of eroding our memories. The details become fuzzy and faded, and before long, we don't even remember what actually happened. Or if we remember it, it's not exactly how it went down. It's something different and maybe even lost altogether. But God never forgets. I'll say something simply, but it sounds harder to understand. Know this, God, in fact, lives outside of time. God doesn't exist in time. I know it sounds weird, just hear this. The effects of time on his memory is not the same as it is on ours because he's not affected by time together. All that to say this, God never forgets, yes? He never forgets. Which leads us to our second story. It's a story of us, kind of. It's the story of beginnings. It's the beginning of everything. When there was nothing, there was God. And God, with the power of his own spoken word, he called into existence all that is. God created everything. And in the middle of everything that he created, he places the crown of his creation, the, the apex, the, the pinnacle of, of what he created 
humanity in the middle of that creation. We call the, the first humans Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve lived in this garden of Eden or this place of utopia, whatever you want to call it. And they existed in there in perfect harmony with themselves and with God. See, God's presence would come into the garden with Adam and Eve every day. And they would enjoy each other's company. And it could stay like that forever. As long as Adam and Eve obeyed the single command that God had said. He said, if you break this command of mine, then you will die. And Adam and Eve lived there for a while. We don't know how long, but the Bible tells us one day God comes into the garden and he cannot find Adam and Eve. They're nowhere to be found. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? God is calling out to them. They are in fact hiding from him. And this is no game of hide and seek. Adam and Eve are hiding from God because they're afraid of him. And they're afraid of him because they have broken his command. They are afraid of him because they have sinned against him. And they recall the words of God who says, if you break my command, you will surely die. Now, this is where it gets weird for me. I always struggled with, with this reality. If God created them and he loves them, and why would he, why would he kill them for breaking his command? If you think that way, you're thinking incorrectly about it. You don't have the full picture. So you have to understand God in his holiness and his righteousness and the perfectness that he is, he in fact cannot coexist with someone who is sinful, someone who is disobedient. That they came together, his greatness would overshadow them and crush them. Picture an ice cube and the sun. The closer the ice cube gets to the sun, the more it's destroyed. Hear me, the sun is not angry at the ice cube. The sun is not frustrated with the ice cube. They just can't coexist, yes? That's what it is with a perfect and holy God and a sinful and broken people. So in a profound act of mercy, God banishes Adam and Eve from his presence. He says, you have to go. You have to go. But before he sends them out of the garden, he promises them that one day I'm going to send a savior. He says, I'll send someone and it'll take care of the sin issue. It'll take care of the death issue that is now upon humanity. And I will reconcile the relationship between me, a perfect and holy God, and a sinful and broken people. Oh, and did I mention God never forgets? Let's talk about us for a minute. You and I, much like the ancient Israelites, we too are enslaved to something. It might not be a wicked King Pharaoh, but it's a, a wicked thing in our lives called sin. And some of you here might not be of the persuasion where you believe in God or believe in sin, and I'm so thankful you're here, and that's fine. But if I could be, if, sorry, if I could ask you a question, if you could be intellectually honest to yourself, don't you think you do things that you just wish you didn't do? <laughs> I'm seeing some nodding heads, right? Don't, don't you do things that you wish you wouldn't do? And I'm not talking by accident, like you, oh man, like you stepped in something. I'm talking like you, you willfully do things. And sometimes even while doing said things, you're saying to yourself, stop doing this. I've seen broken homes, marriages, failed businesses, failed relationships, you name it. All kinds of deplorable life situations that people find themselves in because they can't stop themselves from doing things. 
All I'm saying is the Bible gives a word to that. The little engine inside of us that causes us to do things is called sin. And we are, in fact, enslaved to it. The hamster wheel of life is action, regret, remorse, promise I'll never do it again, to then do it again, to then remorse. And can I just lovingly tell you this? And I say this all the time here at Renaissance. Nobody has lied to you in this room more than you. You're the one who says, I'll never do that again. I promise myself I'll do better. I'll try harder. I'll put up boundaries of whatever your thing is only to fail again. That is what sin does. So we are in fact enslaved to it. But as God never forgets his promise, he does something profound. Look in the most famous passage in all of the Bible, we read this. For God so loved the world. He loved the world. His motivation to do what he's about to do is driven out of love for humanity. He loved the world that he would give his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. What he's saying is, you don't have to finish your life into death to be eternally separated from God. You can have the presence of God in your life, not just here and now, but in the life eternal. Keep reading, it says, God did not send Jesus, his son, into the world to condemn the world. Listen to me, the world is already condemned. It's already condemned. Jesus did not, does not come to condemn the world. Sin rules and reigns here. Death rules and reigns here. We see it all the time. We're reminded of it when we look at those photo albums. He does not send Jesus to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So when I read my Bible, and I do it often because it's kind of my job, I'm just saying, I, uh, I have a lot of questions. And I write them down. I have two of them right here. If I'm reading John 3, 16 and 17, my question is this, how is Jesus going to save the world? I just want to know. Secondly, how is Jesus going to overcome sin and death? Those are the two questions I have. The answer sounds like this. Jesus, who comes to earth and lives a perfect and holy and sinless life is willing to give up his life for us. That's how he does this. That's how he saves the world. He comes and takes upon himself death, which remind you, only comes from sin, right? Adam and Eve, if you sin, you'll die. Jesus has never sinned. He does not deserve death, but he's willing to take death upon himself so that you and I can be spared. The Bible goes into terrifying detail how this thing took place. In the middle of the night, and he's with a group of his friends at a little prayer gathering. Roman soldiers march in and arrest Jesus where he's dragged to a mock trial and condemned to die. He's given to Roman trained executioners where they strip him naked, ridicule him, they mock him, they beat him. The Bible tells us they beat him so badly even his closest friends couldn't recognize him. He was spit upon and mocked, and he was eventually nailed to a cross. And it was on that cross he breathed his last, and he died. Some friends of his take down his broken and bloodied body, and they wrap it in grave clothes, and they put him in a tomb, and they roll a stone in front of it. I picture death standing over Jesus in that dark and cold tomb, thinking that he had vanquished Jesus. Jesus said this interesting phrase. Just before he breathed his last, 
just before he bowed his head and died, Jesus said these words. He said, it is finished. He said, it is finished, just before he dies. Now, what is he saying there? Well, I can tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, I am finished. He's not saying, I am too tired to pull myself up to catch another breath. He's not saying I've lost too much blood and I'm losing consciousness. He's not saying I've suffered too much. I just want to die already. He's saying it is finished. What is it that is finished? It is the saving of the world. Jesus absorbed upon himself the punishment of sin, which was death, and he died. But I have to tell you this. Spoiler alert, <laughs> that is not the end of the story for Jesus. And it is not the end of the story for you and me. Some of Jesus' disciples or followers or friends, whatever you want to call them, a, a couple women, they got up early on the third day after Jesus had been crucified and they make their way to the tomb. And it says on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking with them spices that they had prepared. This is the cultural equivalent of taking flowers to a grave or maybe a potted plant to a funeral. They're going to pay their last respects to Jesus, the dead Jesus in the tomb. And they found that the stone in front of the tomb had been rolled away. And then, I love this, they went in. I ain't going in, I'm just saying. They go in to the tomb and they do not find the Lord Jesus. And it says that they were perplexed about this, which I think is the understatement of the universe. What? Where does the dead body go? And it says, while they were perplexed about this, two men, angels, stood over them or by them in dazzling apparel. And the women were frightened. They bowed their faces to the ground. And the angel said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? See, Jesus is not here. And he's not here because why? Because Jesus has risen. Now, I just got to say this. In my mind, there's a much louder applause in that moment. <laughs> like, if you're visiting with us, um, this is like a big day for us where we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And I have to admit, church folk are a little weird. I get it. I'm one of us. I mean, I'm a church folk. I get it. And to prove how weird we are, I'm going to do something. So if you're visiting with us, just discount this, but we have to do this. It's like a tradition thing. I'm going to say some words. And when I say them, some people are going to respond to them. And I won't ask them to do it. Have we rehearsed this? We haven't rehearsed this, right? Right? Here we go. This is, it gets weird at this moment. I'm just saying. Ready? Watch this. Watch this. He is risen. Isn't that weird? It's like Pavlov's dog. We just start salivating. He is risen. Yes, he is risen indeed. That's exactly what has happened. And we celebrate that. If you wanted proof that God can save the ancient Israelites, you, you need to look no further than the fact that the shackles around their arms and their legs are gone. You need to look no further than the fact that God gathered them all together and en masse led them into the promised land. You need to look no further than they were living into the place where God take, or taken them. They're no longer living in Egypt. That's the proof that God rescued them. But if you're looking for proof that God rescues us from sin, and from death and the grave, you need look no further than the resurrection of Christ. That's the proof. 
In fact, one of the greatest teachers about the resurrection and its purposes for our life is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote over half of our New Testament. He is considered by most scholars the smartest man that lived in his generation. He understands the things of God. And Paul had this to say about faith in the resurrection. See, if we're going to overcome sin, death, and the grave, it is through faith in Christ alone. We won't overcome sin on our own. We won't overcome death on our own or the grave on our own. It is in faith in Christ alone. This is what Paul says. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. Check it. If you're, <laughs> you can have as much faith as you want in God. You can live the most religious life of any of your neighbors or coworkers. You can trust God fully. You can trust Jesus fully. You can even believe he died on a cross. But if he has not been raised from the dead, all of that faith means nothing in regards to rescue from sin, death, and the grave. The resurrection of Jesus is the thing that all other things hinge upon, yes? If we are still in our sins, then we should expect a separation from God. We, we should expect a, a life to be challenging and difficult here. And not only here and now, we should expect to be eternally separated from God. But if he's raised from the dead, then that changes everything. Hear me, N not just in the future, it changes everything here and now. That, that hamster wheel of life that I mentioned earlier that you, you can't seem to get off of, the resurrection of Christ can free you from that. It's just faith in that. I'll close with these last few words, um, and then I want to pray for us, if that's okay. There is one God. One. One God. One true God, I should say. And sin entered the world that God had created, right, through one man. His name was Adam. And we inherited it. It comes to us naturally. You don't have to learn to sin. Did you know that? You're, you're already a professional. <laughs> and what's the, cr the crazy thing is babies have it too. And that's so difficult to understand because babies are so precious and they smell so baby, you know? But if you let said baby grow up to be a two-year-old, hmm? you'll see what sin looks like. <laughs> I don't like that pastor. He's kind of mean. <laughs> no, we, we have it. There's one God. He created everything. Sin entered the world, and we have it too. It's, it's contagious. We have it. But God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to rescue us from that. Jesus gave his one life and died upon a cross for us where he was buried in a grave. And then God raised Jesus from the dead. Hear me one time. There will never be another sacrifice for you and me. There's, a, there's not another one. It is Jesus. If you want to have a relationship with God, it goes through Jesus. He doesn't need another sacrifice. This is maybe freeing for some people in the room because so many people are laboring to have a relationship with God. You're trying harder. You're doing better. You're doing more. You're doing all this extra stuff. And all God is saying, why don't you just let Jesus do the work and have a relationship with me through him? He's in fact not asking you to sacrifice your life for him. Jesus already did. 
one God, sin in the world, one Savior, one cross, one resurrection, and we have faith in our rescue in only one person, that is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So I want to just talk to the three groups of people that are in the room, and I know there are three groups of people in the room because they're here every week. The first group of people is the group that I'm in, so it's the better group, just throwing it out there. (laughs) It's the best group. It's the group of people who believe this, who just some, in some supernatural, spiritual way, we believe this. God has placed in us a faith that can't be shaken. And it's just, for us as Christians or believers or whatever we call it, this is like a big deal for us. And so I know there's people in a room like me. So thank you for coming. This is a celebration for us and for Jesus, yay. The second group of people are people that maybe had a place for God at one point in your life. Maybe when you're younger, several years ago, I don't know what the story looks like, but God was important to you. Jesus was important to you. Maybe even prayer, Bible study, whatever. Church even, maybe, I don't know, whatever your jam was, but there was a closeness that you felt with God for a long time. But through a series of life events, you have now found yourself just sort of drifted away from him. That's the second group of people in the room, and I know you're here too. Thank you for coming. And then the third group is the group that I just hold so dear to my heart. It's the group that I used to be in. It's the people who just have no understanding or faith at all about Jesus or the church or anything. In fact, I grew up in a family that did not go to church. It was not our thing. It was not our thing at all. In fact, when I was growing up, um, Jesus was just as real as Scooby-Doo was to me. I mean, just make-believe things. And I know there's people in a third group that are here today that this is like so foreign to you, but you've been so kind to honor your friend or family member who invited you. Like, all right, I'll go to church, twist my arm. I get that, totally get that. I just want you to know I was exactly in that group 20 some years ago at an Easter service in a church just down the street. And the pastor with a face mic just like me, less handsome, just like me. I just gotta make sure you understand. It's therapy. It's therapy for me. Just like me, preach the message just like this about Jesus' willingness to die for us, his resurrection, that God loves me, God wants to save me. And I'm not kidding you. In the middle of that service, my eyes were opened and I I saw it. It made sense to me. And I accepted it as fast as I could gobble it up. I just said, yes, that's what I want. I, I believe that. It was supernatural, it's it's crazy. Listen, it's God who does that, I can't do that. I could never persuade you to believe. I don't have the talent to do that. I would never want to persuade you to believe. What I ask for is the Spirit of God to come in and convince you that this is true. And it happened to me 20 some years ago and my life has never been the same. So I want to close in prayer and I want to pray for all three groups of people. Would you allow me to do that? God, thank you that we can come together. You're so good to us. You're so faithful to us. Even when we don't deserve your faithfulness, you are good and faithful to us. God, we ask right now that you'd come and be with us. We thank you Um, those of us in the first group of people who are believers and Christians, that we can come together, rejoice over the work of salvation through Jesus, his death and burial. 
We love this day over all days, God. So thank you for allowing us to come together and worship your son. And for the second group of people, I just picture um, those uh, uh, people who used to have a relationship with God, but it's just sort of um, grown uh, dim and cold, kind of like a campfire that's going out. I just pray in the, by the Spirit of God that he would just blow on those embers in your life and he would fan into flame a desire to know Jesus again, to know God again, to find yourself back in relationship with him again. In the church, we call this word repentance. It's all it is. It just means to stop living the life we, the way we want to live and to just start following the life that God wants us to live. So we thank you that we can do that. We thank you that your spirit desires that for us, that we could fan our, our uh, spiritual life back into a flame again. And for the final group of people that are here who just don't see it or understand it, it's, it's just the, the darkness of sin in our lives. It's just the cloudiness of sin in our lives. It just doesn't make sense to us. And I just pray by the, the spirit of God that you would just reveal Jesus, that you just prove to people that, that he's real and that he's, he loves you and he wants to save you. And for that third group of people, I, I, want to, I want to lead you in a prayer if you want to repeat this. And you don't have to repeat this out loud. I wouldn't embarrass you. But 20-some years ago, I repeated the prayer that, that the pastor at that church led me through, and it changed my life. And the prayer started with something like this. And if you, if you want to say these words, you can say them quietly under your breath, just say them in your heart. But it sounds like this. It's like, Jesus, God, I know I'm a sinner. I didn't know it before, but I know it now because that, that life that he was talking about, that's me. I can't seem to break this cycle. It is, it is lather, rinse, repeat in my life over and over and over again. God, I'm a sinner, but I know Jesus was your son come to save me. And so I want to receive Jesus. I don't know what that looks like for the rest of my life. I don't know what that looks like for next week, even next year. But God, I know right now it makes sense to me. And so I'm asking, God, would you put Jesus inside of me? Would you save me? I know you hear me when I cry to you. God, save me. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Together, we can reach the heart of Decatur. And if you'd like to be a part of that, please go to rendicatororg backslash give and make a commitment to be a part of showing the people of the city of Decatur the truth of Jesus and how much he loves him.